Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So welcome to Books and Critical Theory. Uh, on this episode, I'm joined by Mary Evans, who is Emeritus Professor of the Department of Gender Studies, and Hazel Johnson, who is the Department Manager of the Department of Gender Studies, both at the LSE, uh, and Sarah Moore, who's Senior Lecturer in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath. And we're going to be talking about their new book, Detecting the Social Ordering Disorder in Post-1970s Detective Fiction. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank us. No, and it's, it's great to have all three of you. Um, usually I'm only lucky enough to get one um, author. So it'll be really interesting to hear your, your three perspectives uh, on the book. And actually, since I've got all three of you together, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about where the book came from in terms of your collaboration. Mm-hmm. Like, have, you, have you always been sort of working together in this way? or We haven't been working on this same theme together, but Hazel and I have worked together for a very long time. Sarah and I have talked together in various Mm. ways, I suppose, for an equally long time. Mm. And so we just happened to come together because we all um, went public with an absolute delight in reading detective fiction. And then we thought, okay, let's do something with that. Mm. Yes, and I think, yeah, I mean, what Mary said is absolutely right, of course, but it's it's been a very slow-burning project, but in a really nice, good way. And I think that's been to the benefits of the book so I certainly started meeting Mary about seven years ago to talk about um, detective fiction that we love and then to sort of segue into current affairs issues to do with academia political issues and I think that to me that's what's interesting we write this in the afterwards don't we there's sort of this interesting convergence of interests on the one hand talking about professional matters and political matters and then talking about our favourite detective novels and then sort of starting to feel a bit frustrated with mainstream sociology that it's not necessarily answering to the problems that we were talking about. Yeah. And Mary and I used to work together on a journal of European Journal of Women's Studies and the Mary and the other author, Kathy, we used to all we used to get the business out of the way and <laughs> then talk about detective fiction. Yeah. And I would say, actually, collaboration, if you're going to write about detective stroke crime fiction, is essential because the field is so vast mm-hmm. that one person, unless they're an absolute, some kind of demonic reader, could not possibly <laughs> cover the field. So one of the really great things about working together is that we all kept on informing each other. Mm. I mean, that was crucial to the project. Mm. I mean, it, it is probably interesting uh, as a starting point almost to think a bit about what that object is actually you, know, you mentioned the kind of vastness of the field but but what are we actually talking about when we, when we say detective fiction because uh, early on in the book you kind of specify you know it's not really just crime you know there's something specific about uh, you know, the genre itself and, and the object so it'd be interesting to get a starting point for, for what this object is my view of it is that detection and detecting suggests that you're going to look at the process 
of what, how an investigation is taking place. I think once you start to talk about crime fiction, you're dealing with very hard and clear boundaries between what is a crime and what is not a crime. And one of the things that we wanted to do in this book is to actually illuminate the ways in which in the last 50 years, certainly some of those boundaries between what's criminal and what isn't criminal have started to become very, very blurred. So yes, of course, you might end up with a dead body, you might end up with some other kind of act, which is, of course, in legal terms, criminal. But the point is, there's an enormous amount of other behaviour that occurs socially, which you can't easily classify, or you might want to classify it in a number of different ways. It's really interesting that uh, even in the definition, you've gone straight to a claim about the social, you know, kind of a vision of uh, how the social works. And this, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the kind of strong thesis of the book, that we're not just talking about a kind of sociology of the genre, which, you know, we talk about production processes or who the authors are, this kind of thing. But we're talking about detective fiction as a means of knowing the social. And again, exactly. sort of touched on that. And it'd be great to hear that thesis laid out, actually, because I think, you know, that is a kind of crucial thing that the book is doing. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. We are interested in making quite an ambitious grand claim about the possibility, the potential um, of detective fiction, not just, um, you know, something that can nicely illustrate a historical period or, you know, take, sort of take the temperature, socially speaking, but can actually be a form of inquiry in and of itself. And that, that is really important to us. I mean, when we got to the conclusion, we were quite concerned to make, set out that thesis. And the term we sort of reached towards was... Um, social texture was particularly important um, and as a sort of conceptual tool, if you like, or a form of inquiry that is central to the detective novel and could, we would say perhaps should, be more central to sociological work too. Um, so texture is a sort of concept that's uh, much prized within the arts and it refers to the connection between um, a work of art's different um, elements. It's the sort of perceptual depth, if you like, that a work of art creates. And the work of an art critic is therefore to sort of determine the relationship between an artwork's different elements, to kind of move between the particular and the general and work out the overall effect. The literary detective's job is pretty similar. You know, it's to kind of glean the relationship between particular elements of what's going on and then make grand and more general claims, theorising, if you like. And we think sociologists could learn an awful lot from that sort of um, endeavour. You know, it's a form of endeavour that plays, pays very close attention to relationships, communities, social situations, um, and then moves out to think about, you know, what the sociogenesis, if you like, of those relationships, communities, yeah. um, and so on. I mean, the, the question that sort of arises from that, um, you know, this is very much the conclusion uh, of the book, I So what what do you think sociology is not maybe not done, but you know, where is this kind of gap in, in contemporary sociology that detective fiction as a practice would, would fill? Well, I suppose, and I don't know if Sarah would agree with this, but I think one of the long-term problems in sociology is the individual. How do you demonstrate you have a thesis about what is happening in a particular society, a particular culture, in which you can demonstrate A to Z of that behaviour? Or, or its characteristics, how does that actually get into an individual behaviour? 
it's that intersection, it's that connection which we wanted to explore. And I think one of the ways in which I would illustrate this by is referring to the characters of many of the detectives of 1970s detective fiction, in which they cross all kinds of boundaries. You know, they are in many ways damaged people, as we might describe them. They do all sorts of things which are supposed to be illegal, maybe immoral, and, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, they are working towards something which, in moral terms, they recognize as good and legitimate. And it's that kind of working through these kinds of moral questions, which I think is interesting, because that makes some of these connections between the individual and society, I think, most apparent, but also actually illustrates how sometimes those lines are actually blurred as well. So at the same time as you're joining up dots, you're also saying that sometimes those dots can't be joined up. You're dealing with two kinds of connections, and I think that that's what's so interesting and so important. I think the other, I think that's right, and I think the other thing that I would say in terms of what sociology could learn, the gap, as you put it, with mainstream sociology, what contemporary detective fiction does particularly well, is, is the latter does a particularly good job, of course it does because it's fiction, of conjuring up the social world and populating the social world. And, you know, without wishing to suggest there's absolutely zero merit in contemporary social theory, I want to, of course, because I'm going to get lots of hate mail for that. So not at all. P45. I know, exactly. Not at all, not at all. But I do sometimes feel like when you read contemporary mainstream social theory, particularly that's particularly popular today, so Bauman and Foucault and Baudrillard, and I'm really I'm putting my um, neck on the line here, Bourdieu, you know, these are pretty unpeopled accounts. Like Sometimes reading these accounts of the social world, and they are accounts of the social world at the end of the day, it feels a bit like walking through a ghost ship, um, you know, in the sense that there's not much work done to really sort of conjure up the social. And and that's a source of um, frustration um, for me. I think that's something that sociology should have a commitment um, uh, to doing. Um, and it's something that detective fiction does particularly well, of course. I mean, a really obvious way to illustrate this is with a question about social change. Mm. And you do that, you know, sort of really well quite early in the book by thinking through, I guess, you, know, you might think of them as kind of giants of the genre Agatha Christie on the one mm. hand and then Steve Larson, um, you know, mm. who, I mean, in, in some ways, it's incredible they're even the same genre uh, because they're so, so different. Mm. But there is, the, you know, the, the kind of sense you draw out of here is change in technology, the nature of modernity, mm. globalisation, illustrated by thinking about these two authors. Mm. I mean, I think also what you have to say is actually not to think of those two canonical figures, um, Larson and Christie, as separate, but actually see the connections. Because in a way, what Christie does is she, he, her two central characters are in themselves outsiders. I mean, single yeah. elderly women are outsiders. They always have been. I mean, you know, Miss Marple isn't actually identified as a witch, but she might well in previous periods been, been identified as precisely that. She doesn't have a cat, but if she had a cat, I mean, you could push that connection even further. 
Exactly the same as Blomquist and uh, Salander in the Millennium Trilogy. They're outsiders. So you're, you're dealing with people in the same sort of situation, it seems to me, even though how they do that outsider-ness has, of course, changed. That's really, really interesting. I, I guess the, the sort of things that we see the continuities through there um, are... What I think of as you know they're kind of yeah they're doing of, of themselves, yeah. but obviously the context is yeah, is, is oh, right yeah. the context is very different. But I noticed that I mean in the recent if I might speak about something which is not a novel but in the recent dramatization of Christie's the ABC murders, you know what was given to Poirot was an identification with a, with actually an immigrant situation. Somebody who was a refugee, somebody who came to this country mm. fleeing from war, fleeing from slaughter. And you think, okay, Christie was well aware of that. That's what she was doing. And it's those kinds of hidden depths which, of course, that television dramatization made clear. And I think you have to recognize because sometimes that isn't recognized in Christie. There's so much, you know, sunny 1920s period drama, and that obscures the places, the imagined places which Christie is situating her characters in. I mean, you, you deal with really, uh, I guess, kind of grand sociological theoretical themes uh, throughout the book, and, and one of those is this idea about kind of blame responsibility. And one of the texts, I mean, I, I haven't read this, so um, it might be interesting um, from you know, my point of view to hear a bit more, but one of the texts you talk about is calling out for you uh, which, which sort of, um, it, at least in my understanding, is, is concerned with working out who is to blame for things mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. which obviously is a major kind of contemporary concern, mm-hmm. slightly different from who or what is responsible. Yes. Yeah, Calling Out for You is a 2006 novel written by Norwegian crime writer Karen Fossen, and Fossen's really interesting, I think, you know, her sort of central concern throughout her work is this question of what happens to small communities when violence erupts um, and you know how violence might go underground and how we sort that out and calling out for you is is no different to the rest of her um, oeuvre if you like its central character is this very sort of modest middle-aged man Gunder um, Yeoman um, living in a remote Norwegian community and we start the book by following him as he you know clears out his life to make room for his new bride who he met whilst traveling um, in India this sort of lovely vibrant um, woman called Kuna that we learn about and she's moving over to Norway um, to join him so the first few pages of the novel sort of really lovely account of this guy who's making space for somebody new um, but Una never makes it. So her corpse is found several days after she's due, um, very unceremoniously dumped in a nearby field. And we get to that point very soon. And that's, what, that's what's really important. You know, we, we get to the body within 20 pages um, of the novel. And the novel is, is about what happens afterwards. And it's not about clearing up what happened, which is important and interesting. Now, what follows is a really nuanced account of a community coming to terms with what's happened, coming to terms with its own bigotry and xenophobia, 
um, suspecting one another, suspecting everyone, keeping secrets from one another, noticing telling details, doing that sort of collective work of um, detection. And we end the novel with something really curious, but also characteristic of post-1970s detective fiction, we want to say. We end with a lack of, a lack of resolution. So someone's collared for the crime, arrested, but there's a great sense of dissatisfaction concerning, well, is this really the person? Wasn't it sort of a, a convenient person to blame? Um, and it's sort of incredibly anticlimactic in that respect. And it's noticeable the amount of post-1970s detective fiction that does that. Um, Asa Larson's um, The Savage Altar, which we write about in the book two, is another sort of case in point where, interestingly, we sort of seem to reach a satisfying conclusion of this is the person who did it. And then the author sort of pulls up and says, well, maybe, maybe not, though. And that's kind of a really interesting pulling the rug under from under our feet type, type of um, moment. So there is a refusal to reach a clear resolution in much post-1970s detective um, fiction. And there is, and I think this is what's really important, a really central tension between the difficulty of knowing for sure who did this bad thing on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the desire for someone to pay the desire for heads to roll, the importance of blame, the salience of blame as a sort of social cultural mechanism, if you like, um, and calling out for you is a sort of great um, example of that, I think. You know, it's, it countenances the possibility that the wrong person's been identified, but going all the way back to, you know, sort of exposition of the start of that novel, it makes it clear that something's been lost, that there's a gap in someone's life, that, that, that there is a debt to pay, and it's balancing those two things that calling out for you does a particularly good job of, I think. I mean, slightly differently later on in the book, you, you pick up this idea about what the good life means and what it means to you know, kind of um, live well. Yeah. But that blame and responsibility dichotomy or, or tension yeah. is through there as well when we think about the housing crisis, when we think yes. about the financial crash, when we think about you know, kind of broader social questions and mm. the idea of knowing... You know, the banking sector was responsible, but also nobody went to prison, etc., etc. Mm. Uh, and I mean, you, you illustrate that with a, with a couple of novels. But I, you sort of flag up in the book. Um, I think it is a broken harbour where you say, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because of, of, of uh, you know you sort of have to know who who did it to uh, to explain that uh, that story. But yeah, it'd be interesting to hear about that kind of sense of how we've seen the good life and what it is to live well. Mm. It's always kind of, I guess, not delivered, and, and how detective fiction grapples with that. I think detective fiction has actually grappled with it for quite a long time because Christie's got quite a lot of um, women in her fiction who are, as she sees it, tempted by what is the emergence of a consumer society of you know living up to certain kinds of standards of feminine beauty. That's there. But in Broken Harbour, it's so much more because there are entire sectors of the economy which are devoted to selling people and convincing people of the achievability of a form of material life which is going to guarantee and bring with it personal um, personal and emotional satisfaction. I think that that's what's mm. crucial. It's not just about saying, this is a nice house, come and live in it. It's about saying, come and live in this house. and You will be happy, your children will be stable and well-adjusted, and you and your husband, and it's very heterosexual, will have a wonderful, wonderful relationship. I mean, the thing about 
blame in this context is precisely, I think, made at the, the end of the film, The Big Short, because they bring up the statistics of the numbers of American citizens in the United States who lose their houses, lose their jobs, and that there's actually one man who goes to prison. There's no accountability. You know, the blame is in the system. But how do you actually make a system accountable for this misery that has actually been produced? And I think that actually that's what precisely what Tana French is writing about. How do you actually say, look, the people who sell these rubbish houses in these rubbish places are actually doing something, which on the face of it, of course, is entirely legal, entirely acceptable, entirely condoned. But what does it produce? I mean, it doesn't, of course, in many cases, produce savage, the savage destruction of families. But if you don't take that literally, of course, it does produce a lot of other forms of destruction in terms of other kinds of stress, other kinds of anxiety, um, which those aspirations, I think, could be made accountable for. I mean, sorry. No, I was just about to say, yeah, I, I think that one thing that's interesting, I mean, Broken Heart's a great example of this, but one thing that's really interesting throughout post-1970s detective fiction is it's almost like you've got, writ large, a truth problem and a brain blame problem, and that those things sort of overlap. So it's like a moral problem of, well, how do you pin down who's to blame and the importance of doing that and the impossibility of doing that? And you've got an overlapping problem of an epistemological problem of, well, you know, in a post-1970s era with increased scepticism about truth and authority, how do we how do we really know for sure? Who should we trust in terms of sources of authority? And I think, again, that's something that, you know, sociology hasn't necessarily been quick to, to, to reach towards those sort of two really big pressing problems. Um, but, again, post-1970s detective fiction has for quite a while been centrally concerned with, the, you know, the blame problem and the truth. Yeah, and I think it's very much concerned with getting getting to what is what is true, what is livable, mm. and I think what is livable as a good life, because in a sense it's trying to say, look, all this stuff that you are you are given that is dangled be- before you, um, leaving the EU is just another example, I suppose. You might want to believe it, but is it actually going to be true? You know, it is a problem, which I think, you know, recent politics, the politics of the last three years, have actually demonstrated very clearly. I mean, I don't think, as far as I know, detective fiction has not exact has not yet engaged with the politics of Trump and the and the EU vote. But that precise that seems to me very much where it was going in these novels. Mm. I mean, it's funny as well because the sort of mode doing this inquiry comes with. Uh, you know, we can talk in cliche terms of kind of anti-heroes, mm. outsiders, mm. but many of the kind of key characters are not just, you know, sort of mm. polar opposites in some ways of these, you know, ideas about the good life, but they themselves kind of carry significant baggage, mm. uh, which on the one hand kind of means that their, you know, uh, scepticism towards authority makes sense, so we can, you know, almost kind of identify with it. But also, on the other hand, makes us think maybe this isn't the inquirer that we should be, and there are flaws about doing social inquiry. And it'd be good to hear about you know the kind of uh, the rather sort of checkered position of the detective, mm. um, you know, and kind of who these characters are. I th- they they live with 
so much ambiguity and so much indecision and so much difficulty in terms of reaching the truth. And that's, you know, I think that's what's interesting. It's like a very practical set of problems in terms of how you work out what happened whilst you don't have access to all the information you might desire, whilst your access might be tarnished in certain in certain ways. Um, and, I, and I think there's a sort of an ethical element to, to all of that, like how you proceed when you know that you don't have full access to things that might be approaching the truth. At the same time, it's recognising that you must reach towards something that approaches the truth. And that's the dilemma of the detective novel, I think. Um, Yes. I mean, the only other thing I'd say at, at that point as well is to, to just pick up on what you've observed there, David, the, the sort of importance of non-professional detectives in post-1970s detective fiction and the difficulty, if you are a member of the police force, in doing that job of detection well. You know, and I think it's, it's a really sort of um, pointed, vivid critique of criminal justice that we find often in post-1970s detective. Yeah, a critique of bureaucracy of institutions. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you know, you do this sort of earlier in the book, but the sense of you know the failure of the social state, yes. or the success of the social state in producing mm. abhorrent situations, yes. you know, that yes. give rise to uh, particularly you know, kind of, um, not individual criminal acts, but mm. socially distributed harms, mm-hmm. um, which I suppose it, it is again something that is classically sociological. Um, but it's this question about how do you populate that um, social failure? I think there's that, and I think it's also in populating, how do you capture things like slowness, drudgery, hardness, viscerality? And I think those are really important concerns of the post-1970s detective um, novel too. So I'm reminded of um, Missing, Karen, Mm. I can't say the surname, that's terrible, Avatgen um, novel, Pays is going to have, are you now? Well, it's Avatgen, thank you. <laughs> In the middle of the podcast. But no, that's a brilliant, not, that's a really great novel um, about a homeless woman yeah. who is kind of framed for a crime. But it's, it's so central to that novel is just the physical experience of having to continually move on and being hated for no good reason often and feeling really cold and having to live in a shed. And, and these are things that these novels do incredibly well. So there's things about discomfort, pain, viscerality, the material aspects of, of the world um, that are so vivid in the detective novel, I think, that are important to that sort of failure of the social state or success of the social state, which I I mean, I totally agree about missing. I think that that, mm. that creation of the experience of homelessness, I mean, should be reprinted and read by everybody because mm. it's. I think I don't think I've ever read anything no. in the second half of the twentieth century, which is quite so vivid about mm. it. I mean, she really gets, as Sarah says, the sense of hatred, the sense of dispossession, the sense of just the absolute insecurity of yourself in that situation. I mean, what it means to have nowhere to go, yes. which you can call your own. And that, I mean, it's so basic, it's so fundamental. Mm. And the sense of having that removed from you, I think, is caught wonderfully in that. And I, I think, just to sort of segue back into academic modes of thinking, like, it's interesting to me that certain, it has to be said, female social philosophers are quite on, on the money with these sorts of issues. So... Mm. 
um, Bonnie Honig's work on public um, things and Jane Bennett's work on materiality, really interesting at getting at this sort of, you know, the, the possibility, that, well, the fact, just the sheer fact that we live in a physical material world that, you know, we come up against and that that physical material world is harder for some people than others. And I think sociology needs to catch up with that set of ideas or engage with it at least. I mean, the, the other thing towards sort of second half of the back end of the book is this question of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, it goes with the grain of, uh, and again, you might correct me, but, you know, a sense of detective fiction engaging with violence much more kind of explicitly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and much more kind of graphic uh, depictions uh, and graphic acts of violence. But also, in terms of things like how gender shapes careers within institutions, mm-hmm. um, you know, how gender kind of, you know, uh, allows certain actors to, uh, you know, almost do kind of quite well in their careers, uh, almost do, dare I say, quite well out of horrific acts, mm-hmm. and others, you know, struggle against particular barriers. Uh, and there's a couple of examples you give, but it'd be interesting to hear about sort of take on gender through detective fiction. Well, I think... We've got a strong sense of that is to be explored further. I mean, no, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. But as far as this book is concerned, I think we were. Um, one thing that I think is quite striking is the forms, and I think anybody who reads any amount of detective fiction notices this immediately that mo- the majority of victims are female. Mm-hmm. They're also overwhelmingly young and female. That's the, you know, that comes up. I mean, I would not, but I would say statistically you could probably back that up. So that's quite important. So what is going on in terms of violence against that particular kind of person, that particular sort of human being? That is a question which I think needs to be further explored. The other thing about making the people who make careers as detectives in in institutions, I think you run up against the usual kinds of things about people in careers, in that those people who are, as it were, carefree, as it's dis- described in the literature, can work 24-7, and other people can't. Yes. I mean, that is just very simple, very ongoing, totally foundational to the way that the social world operates. I mean, could you give me the example of, is it Tozer and Breen, which are oh, two yes. kind of key characters? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Well, they're terrific characters, and I think William Shaw does a fantastically good job of creating, both creating a general world, which is the 1960s, but also creating a sense of characters trying to move out of gender stereotypes. That's what's important about William Shaw's work. He's trying to say, okay, how do we make this different? And he's also saying it's very different. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, we're a big fan of... When Shaw's work in general has to be said. I, I, I think as well that, you know, thinking beyond um, those examples, it's interesting and we think worthy of further consideration and thought. So, you, you know, with, with, in terms of thinking about future projects, this is something that's on our mind an awful lot at the moment. Um, one thing that's sort of very striking is the way in which detective work um, in novels um, specifically remains a very gendered pursuit. So yeah, you're right, there's sort of interesting examples of um, you know, detectives sort of resisting and moving out of gender stereotypes. But one thing that's really interesting is the fact that female detectives, where they're successful, tend to be 
directing their energies towards disentangling the problems of intimate life and violence within intimate relationships. And male detectives more likely to be facing down those sort of big, grand, corrupt institutions and tangled webs of, you know, of networks of criminals and so on and so forth and, and be engaged in those more sort of upward-looking professional battles. So there's, there's something really interesting about what detective fiction does with yeah. that. And I mean, I'm very, I'm, one of the things that occurs to me is this issue of the way in which many of these young women who are the victims of male violence are imprisoned prior to their death. And you think of the, the slogan, take back control. And I'm really interested in these homologous relationships between a political discourse mm. about exercising control over a world which you feel has run away from your control and what's going on in detective fiction mm. in which the male, if you like, perpetrators of crime feel it necessary to physically imprison women. Yeah. This is different from in the 1920s, 1930s. Women were killed because, you know, for, for very often very straightforward reasons of sex or money. I mean, the, you know, the two cliches of yeah, detective yeah. fiction. And now you think, actually, very often, none of those, some of those motives aren't there. There's something simply about mm. this, this young person, this young female person is out of control. She's out of my control. Mm. And it doesn't really matter who she is, but I've got to exercise my control over that. I think, yeah, absolutely. You're totally right, Mary, as always. But um, I think... <laughs> <laughs> he said it's last time. <laughs> I think it's interesting. You know, we sort of talked about how writing this book was a bit of an intellectual journey in many respects. But by the final chapters, for me, I sort of was coming to see this um, type of detective fiction is just so centrally about the experience of powerlessness mm. Mm. And, and what it means to feel you know, as though you are subject to the worst successes of power, what happens to people um, under those circumstances and where that sense of powerlessness comes from. So I, I think absolutely mm. you're, you're right, but I think that's, sort of, to me, that's core to the thematic of the post-70s detective novel. I mean, one thing that's come up as we've been talking that's really kind of uh, come to the forefront, having worked through the book as well as, you know, uh, sort of uh, been discussing it with you today is, do, do you think there are any kind of... Um, Anyway, sociology could talk back to detective fiction in terms of actually saying, you know, we've noticed that this genre convention around violence, young women, mm. uh, questions of powerlessness and control, mm. maybe you might do that slightly differently. <laughs> you know, maybe there are um, consequences of that as a kind of now core part of the genre. Or is that just part of the world that this genre is reflecting? Because, I mean, the, the strong thesis around sociology learning mm. from detective fiction, do you think we can go the other way as well? Can detective fiction learn from, from sociologists? I don't know what Mary's going to say, but my instinct is to say I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put barriers around an artistic mm. form, which has been, you know, amongst the most expressive of artistic forms in, in, my, in my view. Um, so I'd say that as a sort of, uh, you know, to preface what I'm just about to say, which is that we are nonetheless keen to to talk not just to the sociological world, but to the crime writing world. Um, and that, you know, that's important yeah. to us. Um, so, yeah, in terms of, you know, where we direct this thesis, let's put it in sort of softer terms to how you've put it, perhaps. But I, I yeah, certainly think there's, there's room to discuss, if you like, on both sides of, 
I I think actually very much I very much agree with that, and I think that that's what we want would want to do in the way that we want to see it. I often think about this in terms of the ways in which the art world has moved away from galleries, in which art has become about process. It's not about the thing on the wall. It's about the art of creating a garden, the art of the everyday. And I know there's been a cultural turn in sociology, so you could say, okay, we've done that. But I also think there's a case for actually saying, okay, well, how do we combine that turn with a, with a recognition of the existing and ongoing power of the structural. So that this isn't just about sort of putting emphasis in one new context. It's about trying to bring together some sense of what is now an increasingly, as it were, pop-up world. And it's popping up, not because suddenly people have decided that that's just a good idea, but it's popping up because certain kinds of expression have become too difficult, too expensive to locate in other places. So it's that kind of movement which I think I would want to actually try to embody in sociology because it always seems to me to become, in many ways, much too photographic. And the world, you know, we take the photographs, they're lovely, we want to preserve them, we want to frame them, etc., etc. But it's a moment. And how do we give a recognition to the ongoing, to the prismatic, to the constantly changing? I think it's a difficult question, but that, I think, is, in a sense, where some detective fiction is trying to go, and it would be usefully infused into sociological inquiry. Mm. I mean, this sounds like a terrible question to finish with, but does that mean another book? Does it mean, you know, a series of papers? Or, I mean, this might sound flippant, but it's not, but, you know, could you turn your hand to detective fiction? Ah, oh. <laughs> well, it would be wonderful to do it. Certainly, it would be wonderful to explore some of the questions about gender that we talked about. No doubt about that. And that, what's so wonderful about that is we would, of course, have to leave, read a lot more detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's, and that's, that's a really, you know, a, a really obvious kind of, mm. um, almost sort of straightforward this is another book that needs to be written mm. and comes from the book. Yeah, definitely. Um, but before talking more about that, what, what I would say is it's not a flippant question to ask if we turn our mm. hand to write detective novels, not at all. I mean, rumour has it that Bertolt Brecht was going to write a series of detective novels and we've kind of lost, I would just add this in, we've kind of lost that connection to that really critical strand of German theorising that was specifically interested in the detective and the detective novel. So Walter Benjamin... Um, you know, Brecht, Siegfried Krakauer, all these characters wrote really extensively about detective fiction. Some of them turned their hand to it. Um, so, yeah, so there's a legacy, there's a history there in terms of soci- sociological engagement with detective fiction, detective writing. There is another book. Mm. There is another book. Yeah, and just sitting here thinking about it, I'm thinking, okay, maybe we should have a collective detective, you know. <gasps> <laughs> so, I mean, usually there's one strong central figure, but maybe it doesn't have to work like that. Maybe that there is something in which every, you know, a group of people, let us say three people, mm. um, contribute different views of what is going on. So that detection doesn't come out of the experience of one person, it comes out of a collective. And a collective which isn't framed in the very familiar um, uh, fashion of, you know, the bright one and the dull one. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> you know, the plotter and the genius. 